Welcome, everybody. This is the IMD ACE Founders Series. My name is Ian Charles Stewart. I'm an executive in residence here at IMD. And I'm joined today by Raffaello D'Andrea, who is, apart from being a professor at ETH, which is probably the leading tech university in, in Switzerland, he's also the co-founder of warehouse systems company Kiva Systems, which eventually became Amazon Robotics because Amazon bought it from him for lots of money, which is always a good thing. He's now currently still a professor at ETH and working on another startup. One of the things we'll ask him is how many he hasn't sold for $775 million. But Verity seems to be doing very interesting things and, and is a natural progression on, from what I understand, from what you guys were doing at Kiva. The Founder Series interviews started originally live and then, of course, through COVID, switched to being virtual in this manner. The origin of this series, it's part of the Alumni Center for Entrepreneurship at IMD. And it, it's part of our effort to expose a group of alumni who've been asking for access to stories by entrepreneurs, for entrepreneurs, about entrepreneurs, partly because some of these people want to try building companies themselves and others because they wish to invest in them. There's quite a, an enthusiastic angel investor community around the school. And, and so we try to provide conversations with people who've done really interesting things in really interesting ways. And so our chat today will be partly about what Raf has done with his two companies, partly about why he's doing what he was doing, a little bit about how, and then a little bit about what he thinks the implications are for the broader community from the automation AI robotics work that he does. We generally focus on companies that are disrupting existing industries, and we spend as much time trying to understand what might be disrupted as, as what is actually being disrupted. We do a little bit of future thinking in the process, although as Raf was telling me earlier, speculation is not one of his favorite things. Uh, he'd rather make something that actually works, which I have to say I applaud. So Raf, welcome to IMD. Thank you, thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Verity and how it differs from what you guys did at Kiva Systems. At Verity, we are, we're not moving things. You know, at Kiva, we developed a system that for distribution that moved goods around in warehouses. And at Verity, we've created systems that collect data when you need it, where you need it. So it's all about collecting information and making it available to higher level systems, clients, uh, warehouse management system, so that, you know, you can make better decisions. And Kiva, I remember looking at the videos, very cool, was about, as you say, moving things around on pallets with control systems underneath them, following barcodes in the floor with monitoring around them. Verity is actually like going into an ovarium because there are drones flying in different places, stopping in front of pallets and in front of blocks at quite high levels in places, doing inventory management and also helping understand how better to optimize a warehouse system. Is it something like that? We have a system that from a technical perspective, it allows us to collect data when you need it, where you need it, and what powers it are self-flying drones. Mm -hmm. So these are fully autonomous drones, takeoff, landing, charging, obstacle avoidance, obstacle detection. They can fly anywhere in these very large warehouses. We're in talks with one of our clients to install in a warehouse that's 200,000 square meters. I mean, that's wow. huge, 2 million square feet. Some of them are at heights now of 15 to 18 meters. Mm. So these very huge warehouses, basically they're flying mobile phones. I mean, they can go anywhere in space and collect data. Right now they're collecting uh, image data, depth information. They also have environmental sensors, temperature and humidity, but really there's no limit to the kind of information that they can sense and collect. So I guess one of the limits you do have is that you're in a closed enclosed system, right? I know that for the original Kiva systems applications, the system was shielded off from the workers so that they were in a confined space and they worked within their area. The same is true to a degree with the drones. It works because you have sensors everywhere, because you have a controlled space, and because there's nothing extraneous that might come in and interfere with it, although you do have object 
perfect avoidance, or that's partly the drones avoiding themselves. So how much is it controlled and how much is it possible to do it in an open system? So first of all, with Kiva, Kiva didn't have sensors looking at Kiva. Kiva, everything was self-contained on the drones, right. on the on the robots. Yeah. I mean, those were just used for navigation. But the reason that people were not allowed in the space is because we wanted to think of this as a machine. You know, the robots, they were moving very, very fast, shuttling right. things around. And then they would bring the goods to the perimeter of the warehouse where people didn't need to go inside the space. With our system right now, the drones are actually pretty small. You know, they're about this big, fit in your hand, they're about a kilo. They can easily coexist with people if you wanted them to. The part that it's hard to coexist with are forklifts because forklifts can move extremely fast, 35 kilometers an hour. They have very poor situational awareness and you can only get out of the way fast enough if if a forklift comes barreling around. But the drones are fully, they navigate, all the ability to navigate is inside the drone. There's no external cameras looking at the system or anything like that. And actually, what you just described is part of the problem that people are saying we have with autonomous vehicles out in the open space, which is the high variability of what might turn up at different speeds from different angles at different times. That's correct. And there's lighting conditions outdoors. We created a system where we can actually fly in complete darkness. Car at night has lights, so we can see where it's going. Our drones are similar. They have, you know, you can't see them uh, when they fly at night, but they can collect all the data. They can do all this work at night. They tend to work at night when there's no one around, but the uh, coexistence part, it's really about things like forklifts. Sure. So does that mean that no one is using both Kiva systems and Verity drones in the same factory yet? No, I mean, we just launched, uh, you know, Verity, we created the company in 2014. We're a deep tech company. We created something that doesn't exist, the ability to fly drones autonomously indoors when there's no GPS reliably. You know, that took a lot of effort to be able to do. So we launched the product in 2021. We are operating in 12 countries. We're doing more than a million inventory checks per month. Wow. We're flying the you know, hundreds of kilometers on a regular basis. But right now, there's no coexistence of Kiva with Verity. I highly recommend that people search on YouTube for RAF and Kiva and Verity. It's great fun to see the videos. It's really quite impressive to see how effective they are and how efficient they are. A slightly different question in comparing the two companies. Kiva was founded what year? 2003. And you sold it? 2012. Okay, so a good nine years. And lots of things have changed during that period, technology capability, but also management and the things you've done and the things you've learned. Are you building Verity any differently from the way you built Kiva? Yes, for, I would say, three reasons. First of all, when you do something once, you learn uh, how to improve it. So you try, to, so you try to do it better. Take the things that you learn from doing that and, and apply it differently. The second one is you, you said it already. Things have changed from a technological perspective. So you know we are a deep tech company, so there are different capabilities that you can bring to bear. And I think the third is that Kiva, I was actually the tech guy, you know, and Mick was the business guy. And at Verity, I'm more the business guy, even though I was very involved technically at first, but we have a, an amazing CTO and he's one of the co-founders, Marcus Hen. So I really focus more on the running the company. So that's different, <laughs> very different. I can imagine um, having, having done the latter and not the former, um, I can imagine. So let me ask you a question which, which came to mind when I, when I saw that you were both a professor actively at ETH and now CEO of a, of a, a really interesting high-tech startup generating, already generating revenues and trying to raise more money. One of the things that when I was running money at, as a venture capitalist, either Lazard or at Rothschild, one of the things we tried to make sure of was that whoever was there was committed 100% full-time to the project. You spend some of your time as a professor, where I can imagine there's a lot of value being made yep. in, in the research, but that means that that time is taken away from you at the company. How do you manage that conversation with potential investors? Well, first of all, I was on leave for a significant amount of time to get Verity off the ground. We're 120 people right now, so we've really scaled up. We have an amazing man- management team. 
of 10 folks that run the company. We, we, we like to empower people. Yeah. And I keep those two things very separate. You know, what I do at ETH as a professor is very different than what I do as a CEO. And I think those two things complement each other mentally. It's wonderful to be able to do one thing. And then <clears throat> it just it just helps you in ways that it, it's hard to quantify. But just thinking very differently about things helps both significantly. So I think I understand why when the company's in its infancy, why you want that commitment. But I actually think that the way it's working right now, because of, you know, I teach two of the most popular courses in the graduate program in robotics system control at ETH. 200 students, they come to my lectures, they find out what I'm doing, and they get interested in my company. So they apply to it. So it's a, it's one way to explain it to folks. But let's put Twitter aside. I think Elon Musk has done okay running multiple companies. No, I agree. I spend part of my time here helping out on the MBA program. And apart from trying to enthuse and inspire people to do things and stretch themselves and try for things that they might not normally think about, whilst I also spend my time with my companies, I've also found myself hiring some of the students that I like, which has been a great benefit. It, it helps. But I think at the end of the day, it's really about empowering people in the company, especially as the company grows. You really want to make sure that you know the folks that are you know, on fire, just give them as much responsibility as they can absorb and let them hire people too. You know, they should be doing the same. I have a general philosophy in life is that I try to make myself obsolete <laughs> in absolutely everything I do. Yeah. I except parenting. <laughs> Good philosophy, I think, on both counts. Parenting, if people haven't tried it, is one of the toughest things to do and one of the most fulfilling. So over that period of time, two companies we've talked about, can we just back out a little bit? Sure. Are these the only two companies you started? Because you're, you're hitting 100% at the moment, if that's the case. I also helped a company, RoboGlobal, get off the ground. It's a company that introduced the world's first robotics ETF. Of course, the markets have changed the last little bit, but certainly above $2 billion in assets under management. And uh, we did that in 2013, kind of really before anyone really was thinking about you know, thematic investments in the robotics and automation space, very much overlooked by Wall Street and Main Street. Yep. You know, it's doing well. Obviously, the last uh, little bit has, has taken a toll, just like anything related to tech, but the fundamentals are, are super strong. Anything related to tech with long time horizons for payback. The big tech companies like Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Apple, because they're also big revenue generators and big profit yep. generators, Amazon aside, they're doing less poorly. But the ones that have Correct. long time horizons for revenue... Raising interest rates simply increases the discount factor, which therefore reduces the value. And that's why they've been That's hit. correct. Yeah. Although like Amazon has gone down by a factor of two, I think. I think they're below one trillion. And you know, Facebook, of course, has taken a huge dive. Right. But even Facebook, it's 70% versus 95%. The differentials are quite, quite interesting. I think I spent most of my time trying to help the companies that I get involved with. So investment return is never a decision yeah. for me. It's never a factor yeah. in, in the work I do with companies. So. Yeah. I mean, with small companies, <clears throat> I've actually been very successful investing. But I mean, investing mm -hmm. in the markets, like I'm a macro investor. Right. Me too. So, and I always seem to be looking at things and it always takes much longer than like anticipated. Like in 2002, my wife wanted to buy a house. Right. And I said, we're not buying a house right now. Like this is going to be a big disaster. Right. And, <laughs> and took 20 years for that well, to sort out. Well, it took, you know, like <laughs> seven years, right? 2008, the housing bubble. So it's like, you know, anyway. Back to the companies again. We often talk about the processes that are involved. And I don't want to get too involved in, yeah. in, in management processes per se. But what have you found this time around surprisingly easy? And what have you found surprisingly difficult? What's different in the current environment that you have in, in trying to build and put together Verity? So what I found easy, relatively speaking, is just having access to some amazing talent here in Switzerland. Mm. You know, ETH is the number one ranked technical school, not in Switzerland, but in 
Europe, right? Mm-hmm. It's the number one technical school in Europe. It's ranked top 10 globally. It's just an amazing am- amount of talent. Robotics systems and control is extremely strong. It's one of the best places to do it is here in Switzerland. So getting amazing top talent has been easier than it was in the United States. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I would posit that back in 2003, and I think it's much easier than now where everyone tries to be in Boston or Silicon Valley or, you know, Austin, the new Silicon Valley. And then now there's North Carolina, the new Austin. I mean, there's just, it's always super, super competitive. So I think that's where it's been easier. Harder, I think, is um, getting capital here is relatively straightforward for seed companies. I think it's relatively straightforward when you are making money and you just need to scale, but very low risk. I think that there's kind of this valley in between, which was hard when we started very in 2014, but the general trajectory is that is getting better, but mm-hmm. it's still harder than it is in the United States. Yeah. No, I, I've heard that several times. The valley of death, people call it here, the gap between startup phase and then scale up phase. Yeah. And you're right. If, if you have revenues and profits, then scaling up, people will happily give you the money for That's it. That's right. But if you're in that stage where you're still trying to build as fast as you can and as hard as you can, exactly. it's a little bit harder. I mean, it, again, it also varies by sector. This is a country that That's supports right. med tech and exactly. biotech and pharma really easily. Right. But there's a lot of stuff. And I, I particularly do B2C tech and consumer. There's nothing here. There's neither funds nor are there many startups. And I find right. myself traveling a lot just to be able to yep. go back to play with the sectors that I Yeah, have. I was going to say the exception <clears throat> to that, of course, is uh, cryptos. Uh, you know, cryptos become big here, be, yeah. yeah. I think, yeah. I think there are really interesting things going on. I think I like a lot of the thinking behind the development. I just think there's not enough understanding of traditional finance working into the crypto finance space. And I think we, the whole space would be stronger if we had a, a better blend I, of I risk a, management in the area. I have a philosophical aversion to it. I believe that the world should be, the underlying social glue should be trust. Right. A deal should mainly be shake of a hand. Right. And then, of course, you got to get the documents, dot the I's and cross the T's, Right. <laughs> The whole premise behind crypto is that there no is need no, for trust. no need for trust. Right. And to me, it's a philosophical point that I have yeah, with crypto as opposed to anything else. That's very interesting. I really like that as, a, as an angle. One of the things that I think you've talked about on a number of talks, getting back to the, the companies and the business, and more specifically, the solutions you're working on, is how you're working on complete systems. They're not discrete items. It's not robots per se. It's not right. drones per se. You're creating systems. How far can those systems go? How, how big can they get? And do, they, do the systems have to have walls? It's a similar question to one I asked earlier is how far out can you go on these things? How, how, how far can the autonomous nature of a system spread out beyond the limits of a warehouse? Yeah. So for what we're doing at Verity, these are self-flying drones. We designed them to fly specifically indoors where there is no GPS, right? And the reason we chose to do that is that there's a lot of activity that happens indoors. There's a lot of problems that people have indoors because we are operating indoors. It means from a technological perspective, it's actually harder to do because there is no GPS. So there's a technical hurdle to doing well, things it's different. You've got variability in GPS, which of course is a pain if you're trying to do something accurately. Sure. Right? Well, you can fly relatively accurately with GPS, you know, meter, and then you augment it with information. So mm-hmm. you can know roughly where you are pretty accurately. Whereas if you want to fly indoors, you don't just don't have that. You have to <clears> develop <throat> other ways of doing that. So it is more difficult in that way, but it's easier in the sense that you don't have to deal with rain, mm-hmm. wind. Mm-hmm. So that means that you can make your platform much, much smaller, right. which has this huge advantage when it comes to collecting data, because then the operational costs become very, very small. Think of a camera. The camera on your phone weighs one gram. The CCD weighs one gram. And think of how they do inventory right now. They have a scissors lift and a person that goes up top. You've mm-hmm. got like 150, 200 kilos of stuff to put a one gram CCD right. in the right spot at the right 
place. It makes no sense from that perspective. So you really want these platforms, these mobile sensing platforms to be as small as possible. And you can do that when you're flying indoors. And actually, I think you've said it various times that although people focus on the robots and they focus on the drones, if they look at what you've done, you've said several times, it's more about the algorithms and the software that you're developing to try and manage everything and to allow the individual units to manage themselves rather than the physical. It's the whole system, right? So there's no doubt that the drones we make from a physical perspective are actually extremely well-designed. They have, you know, we have some design patents on them, but it's really all the algorithms that run on the drones that really make them magical, you know, the ability to navigate indoors. And so part of it is figuring out how to design this thing so that you can give enough sense data to the drone or robot or whatever to figure out where it is and do its job. So it's the whole design aspect of it is important. All the algorithms, you know, we design the full stack. We don't buy consumer drones and put them in a warehouse. We design everything from the, from the ground up which is why we can operate in multiple countries. Systems are flying every night and we go to sleep comfortably because we know that our system works. Unless people think he's exaggerating, he was inducted into the Inventors Hall of Fame with his team a couple of years ago. That must have been cool. Yeah, that was fun. It was, uh, it was in Washington with Mick and Pete. It was cool to see our robots in, the, in Washington and uh, it's a big honor. Which means the other industry, the rest of the industry also considers what you're doing cool. So it wasn't just the fact that you guys did something that solved the problem, it was something that nobody else was doing. So very cool. Yeah, we solved a very difficult technical problem. These Amazon warehouses now have upwards of 4,000 of these mobile robots running around fully autonomously, no human intervention that, uh, and, you know, they just do it day in and day out. And that takes you know, a certain amount of you know, effort to be able to do. Very cool. Okay, so let's let's shift gear a little bit now from talking about the company and the, the the cool stuff you've been doing within the company to other things which spread a little bit further beyond warehouse systems and think about. I've had emails and WhatsApp messages asking us to ask questions about what they can expect to see in their lives, what they expect to see in the future. And I know you don't like speculation, but we'll try a little bit. First thing, uh, we had an early conversation a little while ago and you railed against robotics as a service. Yeah. Tell me what you mean by that and tell me why you're railing against it. So. There's a right time to do it, and then there's the wrong time to do it as a company journey. So first of all, let's think about it as, what does it mean when you're doing it as a service? Why would you do it as a service? At the end of the day, you're a company, you're doing this as a service because the company at the other end either can't afford to buy it, or the things are constantly changing and they don't want to commit to it, or they want the flexibility. You know, there's many reasons why, but at at the end of the day, someone, you're just shifting the risk around, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, you hear stories of, well, also the other reason you want to do it as a service is is, is as a as a recipient, you know, you want to be able to scale up during peak and scale down and you do it as a service. Well, the problem with that argument is that everybody tends to scale up and down at the same time, right? So, Kim, it's a vacuous argument. So what it really boils down to is the cost of capital. To me, that's a big part of it. And a startup company, its cost of capital is going to be way higher than an established company that you're Mm -hmm. selling something to. So from a pure cost of capital perspective, I don't see why it makes sense from a macro perspective, why a company like ABB or IKEA, one of our clients, would want to pay less upfront and pay something as a service when they would rather just put more money up front and lower their amount of annual service. And from our perspective, as a company that's growing at 3x every year, I want to pull in as much money now as opposed to saying, no, it's okay. I want a revenue stream over the long period. Well, when you're growing at 3x, the amount of installations, you know, new clients that you sign up, 
in any one year will be double. You can do the math. It's simple. Double yep, yep, everything yep. that has summed up to that point in time. So you really want to upfront that amount of capital as much as possible. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. I think scale-ups, people don't realize how capital intensive it is and how much front-end money you need to have. That's I correct. think the argument for an environment where the technology is rapidly changing is one where the argument's harder to make. I think from a small company trying to sell to a large company, of course, you want to sell a complete system and make money. But the large company, if they're looking at the technology and it's it's at a stage where it's clearly in flux yep. and it's hard to commit the capital. One solution to that, of course, is to try and build in upgrades into the system. That's and, right. I, and I guess you guys do that, right? So Absolutely. If, if you have a system, you can tell them, we will future-proof you for at least the next five years based on our ability to be able to change either chips or algorithm or firmware or something. Right. I mean, for Verity, it's clear, right? We've done two things for our clients. For them, it's just one because they don't care how you slice right. it, right? They just, is this providing value? But the first layer is the ability to put this platform anywhere in space at any time, right? So we have this. And on top of that layer, we built for our clients the ability to give them amazing visibility into their inventory, to drive their errors down to zero. And that's based on vision information, the mm-hmm. visual data and depth data. There's so much that you can do with visual data and depth data besides just, you know, we can do racking inspection. We can do picking locations. But those are software-only upgrades. I mean, it's just like your phone, right? You have your phone. It's a basic thing that it does for you. And of course, there's the apps that run on it. So there's a lot of things that we can do to make it even more valuable. But at the end of the day, if somebody's going to make a decision to adopt the system, it has to be valuable now for the use case that they care now. And that's the important part. I'm a photographer. So I've noticed over the last 10 years that there's been a radical change in the way manufacturers sell their gear. In the old days, especially when it was pre-electronic or or at least very little electronics, you got a system and that was it and nothing changed from, from that until the next model. Now you've got firmware updates for some company, for some manufacturers, it's every two to three months, which is tremendous. That and is. you get you get fundamental changes in the capacity of the of the camera to do things, which I think is really cool. So it's nice to be able to see people planning for development phases in, in technology. I, I think that's key. I think that's key. I think you want to be able, and that's the wonderful thing about drones and collecting data, because at the end of the day, it's just getting this data and what you do with it is the interesting part from a client's perspective. Mm-hmm. When you're moving things around, that's a little bit different because upgrades tend to be a change in the hardware, whereas we can do a lot with the same hardware over a long period of time. Right. Makes sense. Another thing um, that came up in our conversation earlier, many years ago, when we were trying to raise money for Wired uh, in and around San Francisco, so we're talking 1992, we were in the markets um, talking to investors on on this side of the planet because I was in Europe and Lewis and Jane were in, in Holland at the time, and then they moved to San Francisco. Everybody was investing in technology. It was already a buzzy thing. And although the World Wide Web hadn't yet been launched, HTML was there, thanks to the people at CERN, but there wasn't really visualized interaction on the internet at the time. But a lot of the buzz was about the technology and the things that might happen. We were a magazine talking about technology, and we couldn't get anybody to invest in us. If we had done technology or worked on technology, it would have been easy to raise the money. But who wants to invest in a magazine just talking about it? So we had the devil's own job trying to raise our first round of finance. What have you found talking to investors like? Now, you're, you, you said there was a limit to the number of investors you can find in this country. I know I, I hear this all around me here in Switzerland, but you're presumably now with a, a good sale out to Amazon, able to have sensible conversations with investors. What are they like to deal with? How hard is it to explain what they're doing? Are they willing to think about new things or do they only want to invest in the stuff they already know? I mean, it's a little bit self-selecting. I've had, for the most part, great interactions with potential investors. Part of it is you know, I get great introductions to folks that really think deeply about the things that they're interested in investing. And so that's been good. I think that's the good part. People tend to be genuinely interested. I think that in times like these that are very uncertain, 
what you find is that there's this natural dynamics for investors to move together, right? So everybody invests in something that's hot. And then if there's something that happens, then everybody runs away from it. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you get these, maybe hurt is the wrong word, but it's it definitely has these oscillations where things really are very lightly damped. And you have to try to understand why is that that's happening? And it's actually a very rational reason why these things happen, right? So I was trying to think about this. Let's say that you are an investor, a VC, and you've invested in drones in the past, right? And your drone investment has done poorly. And then comes along a company like ours, for example, and we're not a drone company, we're a systems company, but at face value, we're doing self-flying drones in warehouses. People think, oh, you're a drone company. Then there's a big hurdle there to overcome with these folks because it's a risk mitigation strategy. If they invest in you, if, you know, they like you, they invest in you. There's always risk when you invest in a company that's an early stage company, you know, say that at our stage of the company, maybe a couple of years ago, when we invested maybe 50% chance it's going to fail or not. And if it's successful, that's great. And, and if they hadn't done that, if they hadn't been burned with, with that first investment, then they would invest in you. But because they've been burned, the reputation is on the line. Who wants to look bad and make a repeat failed investment? Then your colleagues and your, your circle are going to look like, didn't you guys know better? Like, didn't you guys learn your lesson? To a degree, that's understandable, though. If we make an investment Absolutely. in a sector and we don't we do not do well, then that we'll tend to avoid it next time around unless the argument is super convincing. Super or convincing. Super convincing, yeah. That's right. What's more frustrating is when an entire industry, an entire sector of venture yeah. capitalists, you know, if all of Sand Hill Road outside of Silicon yeah. Valley all decide they want to go into something, well, first of all, pricing goes through the roof. That's right. It's a great time to be a founder. It's a lousy time to be an investor because everybody's that's chasing correct. the same deals. But it also means that if you're not in the space that's super hot at the moment, you can't raise money. That's correct. It, I mean- <laughs> <laughs> all the all the you know all the resources go to this sector, right? I'm a professor of dynamics and control. I, I like to really understand dynamics, right? And part of that, of course, is dynamics of people and how they react. And yeah. and again, it's perfectly rational. You get in early as an investment in a hot area, then it draws other investment. These companies keep on growing. On paper, it looks like they're doing amazing, right? You have your LPs that are asking, why are we not investing in that stuff mm -hmm. that my buddy invested in? So yeah. there's that pressure to do that. It's not surprising that you get these oscillations in sure. what's hot and what's not. So what's hot at the moment? What are you hearing? Leaving aside, I know you're in the process of talking to funders at the moment. We'll leave that conversation for afterwards when it's yeah. done. But in general, as you talk to people, what do you think's hot and what do you think's not amongst the investors you're talking to these days? We're talking about the very short term. I think people are very conservative right now because there's so much uncertainty. Yeah. So I think they like to see investments that don't require long periods of time to pan out. High interest rates will do that to you. And that's the other reason for that as well. The thing that obviously is on everyone's mind is always this recurring revenue. People want to be de-risked in that way. And of course, it's a rational thing to do when the circumstances warrant that. But there's, I think it's being misapplied, that rationale is really being misapplied. It's it, it's become very dogmatic. It's an initial reaction. Okay, well, what's your annual recurring revenue? Well, try to understand our business model before you ask that question and growth and cost of capital and stuff like that. But there's a rational reason for it, right? It's the times that we're in. You know, software, people love software only plays. That's still right. a factor for the reasons that we even talked about earlier. If I think of Verity, we are mainly a software right. play. It uh, does seem to be the um, case. We like to say we're, we are a hardware enabled software company, mm -hmm. right? So, <laughs> so nice. there's, there's a very strong 
IP and moat that we have, but of course it's built on top of it. I mean, like social media is obviously not very hot. Uh, There's a lot of things, you know, robotics is taking a little bit of a hit because it was just so hot. You know, if you look at some SPACs of some companies, uh, you know, they that was as much the structure of the investment relationship rather than what they were investing in. That's correct. Uh, And they also chose companies often that were not yet ready for public markets. This was a way to sneak onto the public market. That's correct. Through a SPAC. So yeah, that was the main problem with SPACs. And there was way too much money going to the organization. Way too much. One of the things that's strange about the conservatism that I'm starting to see, I I get a bunch of newsletters from various private equity and and VC uh, research groups, and obviously money's slowing down, investment's slowing down. It's funny because if you look at if you look at the history of venture returns, both venture and growth private equity returns over the last 60 years, recessions are vintage years. I know. (laughs) I mean, it's partly because prices are lower, because expectations are harder to get across to the table. And also interest rates tend to be relatively high and therefore discount factors reduce valuations. But no, recessions are vintage years. That's when money should be applied. Yeah. There's competition too. And I think that that will happen. But I, I think the, you know, there's a great saying, which is no one wants to catch a falling knife. Right. So I think that basically people just don't know how low it's going to get. Right. True and in then, public markets and, too. And people would rather start investing when it's on its way up and know, yeah, I didn't time the bottom, but I don't care. Yeah, yeah. They just don't want to be there before the bottom. So right. I think there's a lot of conservatism because people are just wanting to see when are we going to turn the corner. No, that makes sense. I was listening to an investor conference about a week ago. I think it was um, Jim Channels and, and Mike Green were talking about how the current timing might indicate a flip in value creation and value received between capital and labor. They pointed out that, I think Jim pointed out that 39 to 79, a period of relatively high inflation, relatively high growth, was also a period when labor was well-paid across the world, particularly in the US, but across the world, and the percentage, therefore, of returns skewed towards employees and internal stakeholders and less to shareholders. 79, that changed. Philosophy changed. Governance changed in both the UK. Margaret Thatcher came in. Reagan came in in the US. And it switched to being capital-oriented. There was also a, a degree of automation starting to take place. Labor took a, a lower chunk of the value add within an organization, and capital took more. At the moment, partly because of social impact, partly because of the over-indebtedness of a whole bunch of chunks of the economy globally now, and they're talking about it maybe being a, a flip the other way. If that happens, though, as I said, it coincides with periods of uh, high inflation and troubles generally in the economy, recessions and so on. The question is, automation should be able to provide, I think you said earlier, a dampener to, to, that, to that challenge between that, that flux, that tension between capital and labor. Have you thought a little bit about how far automation goes in trying to help society manage this balance? That's a very complicated question because what should it do? I mean, for me, maybe I'll answer it somewhat differently. For me, you know, what is great about automation? Automation should make our lives easier and better. Right. You know, there's a saying in robotics, robots are great for doing dull, dirty, or dangerous work. And I'm a big believer in that. I'm a big fan of that. That is where we can actually provide the most value. Then the question becomes, when you start automating more of those tasks, how do you organize yourself socially? And to use the argument, people are going to lose jobs because of robots. The better question is, yeah, but what kind of job are they losing? Hmm. I remember when I used to fly into Boston, when we were doing Kiva, you know, there were people working at the toll booths. They would spend 30 years collecting tickets Hmm. and then giving you change. And I'm thinking, this is not a life that a human being should be having. Hmm. Counter argument is, yeah, if they didn't do this, they'd be unemployed. No, that's the wrong way to think about it. Hmm. We need to set ourselves up socially so that folks don't have to do that. It's like, it's basically 
slavery. I mean, just you're just making people do something that's horrible. I'd rather that they had money and were, or were planting trees or gardening or something like that. So automation can help mitigate that, dampen things because they can actually take over and do things that are dull, dirty, or dangerous, which there's a lot of things that are like that. A lot of tasks fall in that category. So that's great. We should automate them. Now, does that mean that people should be unemployed and have a difficult time making ends meet? No, it doesn't mean that at all. We just need to figure out a way. And I don't think that's a technological issue. I think that's a societal issue. I totally agree. And we've been here before. Industrial revolution, of course, 17, exactly. 1800s, 1700s, the arrival of digital industry changes, exactly. people change. And yes, management of transitions sometimes difficult for people, uh, for individuals, that's for right. companies, for everybody. But that's part of life and part of, you know, we, get, we sometimes get too comfortable in things. I'm going to get hit for that phrase, but I certainly think the transitions can be managed. And that is the societal issue. That, Society's ability to right. help people manage their transition from one industry to another, one type of living to another is, is super important. But technology generally, in general, if we look at the way the yep. different waves have come through over the last 300 years, has been positive for everybody in society to differing degrees at different that's rates, correct. but generally. It's, to the, it's the transient that's difficult, number one. you know, Number two, if you're 60 years old and you're going to retire at 65 and your job gets replaced by something automation, yeah, maybe it was not the best of jobs in the world, but you're five years away retirement, it's going to be difficult to be retrained to do right. something at that stage. That's completely understandable. And you have to think about how do you, you know, how, how do you make sure that those folks don't don't fall through the cracks. The counter argument to what I just said, though, is that this rate of change is getting faster and faster. Yeah, that's so clear. it's making it more difficult for governance for how we organize ourselves to deal with these things, just simply because they happen very, very quickly. Right. And I'm in the camp, I think that, again, this is a statement that's going to get me into trouble with some people. I'm not sure the smartest, brightest, most able people in the world go into country governance. And, and I- they should, though, we should have the best people our best should be running for politics. Our best should be running for governance. The- there is a country where that does happen, France, surprisingly. Now, That's I think, I think France, the French go too far. I think the degree of centralization actually hurts the country. But you do get people coming out of the top schools in France, aiming for top jobs in the ministries in France, and you get high quality conversations with people there. And I think that's something that I wish we would see more of around the world. I think, I mean, it's uh, same thing with teachers here in Switzerland. And they're well paid, relatively They're speaking. well paid. Yeah. Um, it's a great vocation to be in. People yeah. ever say, oh, you're a teacher. That's great. Yeah. You know, if you're in the United States, you tell someone who's a teacher, they'll tell you, oh, what's it like having three months off in the summer? You know, it must be great. Well, you know, there's a lot of places in the U.S. where teachers have to buy. They, they get paid almost nothing. They don't even give them the right equipment for the kids. They have to buy pens and pencils on their own to give to the students. Like this is and I'm thinking this is the generation that is going to, you know, basically be taking care of, of you folks down the line. Which but, that's, is, yeah, but that's also partly societal perception. The United States is a country where everything's measured by money. And so if you look at teachers and nurses, which are highly respected in this part of the world because they're valued by society, in the United States, to a degree, they're undervalued because they're paid less and everybody measures everything by how much you're paid. That's correct. Which I think is a little sad. But they should be paid more. Clearly, they should be paid more. I think on the on the automation side, one time it hit me relatively recently. In 2012, I was coaching a volleyball team from China. We went across to Kobe to play in a tournament. And on the days when we had time off, I walked down into town. Kobe is a place where the average age is really quite, quite old. And I was astonished at the number of stores that had no staff, where there was an automated till. You scanned, price yeah. came up, it deducted money from you, and you walked out. Now, it's a little bit like an honor bar in some hotels. So right. I don't think it's necessarily something that works in all cultures until they get to a point where that honor bar is respected. Yeah. Yep. 
But it was a huge help to that community because there was this enormous shortage of young labor willing to do the store jobs. Yeah. So there, automation provides a solution which otherwise creates problem for the That's aging correct. community. That's and I thought that was really cool. And that was very basic automation. And it did rely upon people not trying to steal. But I was, I was, I was interested to see that firsthand in Japan. And I guess that's going to be something that, that happens more broadly. Yeah. And I would say, you know, I think Switzerland would also be a great place to do something like that. You know, I go hiking in the mountains here and it's great. You know, the little farmer, you know, in the middle of nowhere, they basically they have, you know, cheese and drinks and you put the money in and you take it and it's just this honor system. And this goes back to the point I said of trust. I think everybody's lives work so much better when you buy into that trust and when there's societal pressure to not break that trust as opposed to legal pressure to not break that trust. It should be societal pressure to not do it. The legal stuff should be there for the exception cases, right? not for the average case. And I think that's a very different mentality. I think it does change the way you design legislation and policy at government level, but it also depends upon having a sense of community. That's exactly um, right. If, if you have that that's sense right. of community, then people respect each other. So we live in a farming area, not far from here, but therefore not very far from big cities too. So we know a lot of the ladies and gentlemen who, who run their farms around us. And a number of them have set up these little units where they sell their butter, their eggs, meat as well for those who are, are, are butchering and lots of vegetables. And over time, because we're where we are, we're close to the frontier with France, we're close to big cities. It's a denser population than say up in the mountains in the Alps. And unfortunately, there have been problems with theft. And so some have withdrawn. They've just simply taken it back and then go back to That's selling only to supermarkets. Others are using technology. So yes. one of our neighbors has an automated safe, more cameras, and you know it's it's taken an investment. She also had to work out, Isabel, she had to work out exactly what she could do and what she couldn't based on her limited understanding of technology. But she's created almost a fully automated store like the one I saw in Kobe, but with better monitoring. That's interesting. Um, and that's allowed her to put more in there. So she's almost a fully functioning small supermarket on the side of the road, 100 yards from where we live, which we love and we use. It can to, help. To a degree, right. you need a little bit of Absolutely. balance. I think, I think the, the tighter knit the community feels, the more the trust is there. That's right. The denser the population, the less people know each other, the more you need protection. I love the listing of dull, dirty, and dangerous. And I think that's a key benefit from trying to automate things that people don't necessarily have to do. It's clearly something that's talked about a lot at the moment, partly halts on migration, partly the great resignation where people gave up jobs they didn't feel fulfilled doing. That's right. Um, automation, the demand for automation obviously is going up. I wonder about how long these things take. I think one of the reasons we look like we're heading into a stagflation environment, which is falling economic growth with rising inflation, which is not a good place to be, is because we're not able to provide these solutions fast enough. Tell me what you've seen, because even if, if, if you spend your time focusing on the issues you focus with and you're busy running Verity, you're still closer to a lot of the solutions and a lot of the science that leads to solutions than, than many of us. What are you seeing around you that you'd like to talk about that offers hope for some of these problems going forward? What are the things you're seeing that you're not working on that are kind of cool in the AI and automation space? That's a difficult question because one of the things that we tend to forget from a user perspective is we see something that is not there and then all of a sudden it's there and we think that there was this big revolution, mm -hmm. right? And I'm going to use an analogy to point why that's not really the case. And I'm going to use an analogy that I happen to know a lot about it, and that's drones, right? And specifically, battery density. So it was extremely difficult to build an autonomous drone 2000, right? Because the batteries just didn't have the density required to be able to fly, to carry the computer and everything else. Same problem for cars. Exactly. And so you couldn't fly these things. 
They just don't fly. They don't fly. They don't fly. They don't fly. It's not because people didn't know how to make them fly or have the electronics to do it. You know, they could still do it. Then there came a magical point when things got light enough that you can actually make a drone that would actually fly into external people. It's like, oh, magic. They've been able to create these drones and they just couldn't do it before. But the main limiting factor was actually battery density. So that had to be developed to a point where you could actually use it. The same you could actually use cutter, it, right? Yeah. And that's the same thing with a lot of, you know, uses of automation is that it's not economical, it's not economical, it's not economical, and then eventually it becomes economical because of a step change in a particular element of the technology. No, it's gradual, that's the point. It finally hits a limit, oh, okay. right? And that usually and if it coincides with, for example, you're constantly improving sensors, actuation, computation, perception. These are things that are constantly improving by 2% every year, 3% every year. And those things are just getting better. There's better research being done. And then that coincides with being able to create something that actually comes close to providing value to someone for it. And that can maybe coincide with macro things that we were talking about, like maybe interest rates are low, so people have more capital to spend. And then all of a sudden, everybody rushes into it. And then you see this rapid adoption. I think Kiva was the same. We were building Kiva. We were providing value to our clients. We we hit that magical point where we could actually do it. We wouldn't have been able to do Kiva five years earlier. Timing a lot of it is luck, and our timing was very good. Yeah, no, but true. then as soon as Amazon bought Kiva, that coincided with interest rates being very low. Mm-hmm. Everybody felt that they were behind. So that led to huge amount of effort in this area, right. a huge amount of adoption. So we've just seen this stuff just skyrocket. It is important to state there, I guess, that it helps if the core science at the beginning is on the right path. In looking at the energy crisis we currently have and the assumptions about what can happen in wind and, and solar, yes, we got to a certain stage that people thought it was viable and a whole bunch of money went in. But the pace of development isn't as fast as we need it to be to replace the fossil fuels that we currently have. And that's partly causing the problem we have. And then you've got things like fusion, which has been a science subject for 70 years. And lots of money has been thrown at it, but we haven't had that development at the same rate, nor have we had a step function change of understanding, which I think needs to happen before you get that slow development. So just because we have lots of money being thrown at something doesn't necessarily give you solutions. Something's got to be on the right path first to be able to get that incremental improvement to the point where it's finally over the threshold. That's correct. I mean, and that's a, you know, fusion's a great example. You need to overcome, but the fraction of energy required to, to initiate the fusion and the energy you get out, that fraction has been getting better and better and better all the time. And at some point it will become greater than one. And then all of a sudden you have, but there's people working on this. It's not that Mm. someone is making a radical new algorithm or a radical new sensor. It's just all the steady improvement. And when it crosses over one, it will be perceived to the rest of the world as a step change. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't always go at the pace you hope it goes. No, no, because it's hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> science is hard. Okay, so we're getting to the point where we're reaching the end of the hour. So what is the stuff that's been tough? You know, making self-flying drones was harder than making self-driving mobile robots. Mm, uh, more dimensions of... <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if a mobile robot, something goes wrong, it just stops, whereas a, you know, a drone it just <laughs> it flies into a wall or something like that. So it was just a lot harder to do to get to the level. What really has helped tremendously is simulation. Hmm. So we have, you know, at Verity, we use simulation extensively. It is seldom that we build 
and deploy something that doesn't work the first time mm. because we have already simulated it. We have high fidelity simulation models. We test code exactly the same as it runs on the vehicle as it would in simulation. So this allows us to do all of our development, which is what actually makes it possible. It's still hard because it means that you have to keep your simulation models as close to physical reality as possible. And that's the process, right? You develop it in simulation, deploy it in the real world. It works great. It doesn't work quite the way you want it to. You figure out why, and then you update your simulation model so that next time that won't happen again. So it's this co-development of simulation. That takes time and effort to develop that formalism. It's not that different than what folks in self-driving cars do. You know, most of the development is done in simulation as, as you would expect, because you don't want to do it on the street with people driving around. So that was, that was right. That was difficult. And then of course you can bootstrap on what you have. At Verity, we have the world's largest data set of self-flying flights. We have over 400, 450,000 data sets of all these flights that we've done, all the data we've collected. So we have this huge wealth of information that allows us to really, when we try a new thing, we can just test it with the data that we actually collected and see how well it works. So it's all catalytic. As you progress, you have more experience, which means you can develop better systems. You make less errors. Of course, you have more things out in the field. So you're collecting even more data. Mm. So all of this kind of feeds on itself. So does that mean you think we will get to the point where we finally have autonomous vehicles out in the wild? Let me just kind of take a step back from that. One of the things that people forget is that the difference between 99% and 99.9% is not 1%. It's a factor of 10. Mm -hmm. Because 99% means you have 1% failure and 99.9 means you have 0.1% failure. That's a factor of 10 difference. And the problem with self-driving cars completely in the wild is that you're going to need many, many nines. And every nine you put in is 10 times more difficult. So I think you will see it in controlled environment. And we're already seeing it, right? right? You first start deploying it in controlled environments, maybe predictable weather, you know, so that you don't have hail and sleep. So I think that that's where you'll see it. I think you'll see this again it's this gradual development that you'll see it taking place i mean that's my estimate i mean i I think other folks argue in other ways tesla has been or elon musk specifically he's been saying you know we're going to have self-driving cars level five i think in 2017 he said in 2018 22 we're still yeah yeah. i think level two i mean tesla so i I think there's been a lot of hype i think a lot of folks have made the hype worse by overselling um, I think it's going to take time. I've had conversations with municipalities in the US where they've been having discussions with one or other of the companies that have been working on this for the last 20 years. And they've talked about essentially trying to create a relatively closed system within the inner city. So they would block off a certain yeah. number of streets, ban uh, private vehicles, create very clear areas for pedestrians. And they they thought that they might be able to get that working sooner. But even those experiments haven't happened yet, or at least they haven't got to the point where it's been it's been allowed. I think that's going to be the way it's going to start. I mean, mm-hmm. there's look at the worst, most painful to drive in the city, right? That would be a great <laughs> yeah. way to... Great place to have them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Very cool. Raf, I think that's been a good place to wrap up. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks for having me. It's been been Uh, fun. Nice to actually have you here on location for a change. We very often do these things remotely over the last couple of years. It's nice for people to be able to move around again. This has been the IMDA's Founder Series, hosted here at IMD, the business school in Lausanne. We interview entrepreneurs who are doing cool things, have done cool things, will do cool things. And we try to make the conversation broader than just their company so that we talk about 
what the implications might be that you might see in your lives and what might be things that you might be able to try yourself. So I hope this has been helpful and useful to you. IMD, after all, is about real learning and real impact. And I guess this is part of that. So until next time, thank you for being here. Raf, thank you for traveling down to Lausanne for us. Thanks for having um, me. And we'll see you next time sometime soon.